Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And this is episode three, in which we dive into chapter two of the book of Exodus and continue our Havruta Bible study. Am I, am I getting closer? You are. You've been practicing. It's very clear. Is there a, is there like a B sound there? I thought I just heard you make a B sound. Like Havruta? No, no. V. Uh, though, v. interestingly, okay. in Hebrew, the bet and the vet, the B sound and the V sound are actually the same letter and uh, ah. change, change depending on the grammar of the word. Okay. All right. Uh, I feel like Eliza Doolittle every week. I will. <laughs> I will get better and better. Um, is that her name? I think it is. Anyway, uh, let's dive in. So, uh, do you want to read first, or should I, Daniel? I. You read first because I uh, have been irresponsible and I'm just pulling up my text now. Though I've got it, uh, okay. so I can read. Okay, uh, go for it. Exodus two, and again, I'm reading from Safaria.org. So. A certain man of the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw how beautiful he was, she hid him for three months. So what's the significance here of Levites? Is there anything? Does that mean anything in the uh, Christian tradition well, here? Is that John the Baptist's father is a Levite, um, and he is told by God that that his wife, who is old as he is, will give birth to a son when he is uh, performing his priestly duties. So uh, the Levites are still pretty significant in Christianity hmm. um, and in the gospel. And for the Jewish world, the Levites eventually become the priestly class. So this is the uh, um, same tribe that my family at least claims to descend from. Uh, and interestingly, uh, now that we've got these genetic tests, 23andMe and these sorts of things, there actually is a Levite gene that they can identify. Wow, really? Um, yeah, going back thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and they can find it in sort of neighboring Arab populations in the area, too, because, of course, these were all uh, – we, we were all cousins at one point. Um, huh. Wow. But for our purposes in the text here, right, this is giving uh, uh, Moses what we call Yichis, sort of the, the right uh, pedigree here, uh, that he comes from the Levites, from the class that eventually will become the uh, the priests. Huh. There's actually a, a classic joke where a uh, uh, man goes up to a rabbi and says, Rabbi, I want you to make me a Levite. and the rabbi says, you know, I'm sorry, I just, I can't make anyone a Levite. It's not how it works. And he goes, Rabbi, I will give $50,000 to the shul if you make me a Levite. The rabbi says, I would love to, I, but we can't. And the guy goes, but rabbi, I have to be. My father was a Levite and his father before him and his father before him. And the rabbi looks back at him and says, so about that $50,000. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is awesome. I was like, All right. Joke. Yeah. yeah. Okay, back okay. to our text, shall we? Levi jokes aside. Um, yeah, so then one question I've always had is why can, uh, why is she hiding him for three months and why has there come a point where she can no longer hide him? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a idea of called shot, the surface level reading here. Uh, P-S-H-A-T, I guess is how it's spelled. Uh, and the shot here is simply that, you know, so after three months, a baby's going to start 
the, the basics of moving around and these sorts of things. And, you know, you just can't hide a child uh, after they're no longer a small infant. But there actually is a rabbinic tradition here uh, that the uh, sort of taskmasters, the genocidal uh, uh, taskmasters of Egypt would go nine months after they discovered a woman was pregnant and check in on her. And so the uh, rabbinic imagination says that she actually gave birth early to Moses at six months. Uh, and then he stayed with her for three months past that, uh, bringing to the nine months of when the ah. uh, taskmasters would check on her. Okay. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So these taskmasters, they are, I think we'll see them uh, becoming not just a taskmasters at work, but it really feels like they take over the entire social and family life of Israel in a way like their control extends into the home. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Shall we move on? Okay. When she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket for him and caulked it with bitumen and pitch. Did I say that right? Bitumen, bitumen. I don't know. I, I believe so. Okay. Uh, she put the child into it and placed it among the reeds of the bank of the Nile. Uh, and actually, there's a rabbinic tradition that says, and I'm going to get these two things confused. Maybe pitch went on the outside, but it's terribly smelly. And so they put bitumen, which smells good, on the inside so that Moses wouldn't have to uh, 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 deal with the bad smells. I might have it exactly wrong there or backwards there, but um, that's sort of the rabbinic idea that every single word in here has a purpose and a meaning and is an opportunity for discussion. Uh, and if nothing else, I really hope that's the takeaway any listeners take from this is that, uh, every word should be a jumping off opportunity for us and, and to learn to read this way. Yeah, that's great. So there is a folkloric tradition, um, because in, in many translations, it's not a wicker basket as it is in my Robert Alter one here, but a papyrus uh, basket. Like the little ark is built for him out of papyrus, which is, uh, of course, what people wrote on. And so there is this idea that the infant Moses is set adrift on the Nile uh, in a boat made out of words. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I really like it. Dude, I've uh, never heard that. Oh, I love that. And, you know, it's important because he will, as a lawgiver, of course, come down with words from God uh, later uh, on. So there's a little foreshadowing of the of the Sinai moment even here. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, okay, just that quickly, we're done with Moses's childhood with his mom. Uh, yeah. of course he'll return well, to her. Not entirely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. She spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy crying. She took pity on it and said, this must be a Hebrew child. Uh, always so interesting, right? She immediately knows and she's immediately subverting the will of her father. The Pharaoh. Yeah, she is. Yep. Um, <laughs> and my friend Paula Jackson, uh, in one of the videos we did for the adult forums during this Exodus project, she makes this really powerful point that for any, any resistance movement, um, you need agitators from within the group that is resisting itself, but you also need allies um, within the dominant group 
who will secretly aid the resistance. And she pointed to Pharaoh's daughter particularly as being one of those allies, uh, almost a a Schindler-type figure. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's sort of the power of last week. We talked about the tradition that Shifra and Pua are non-Jews, and we both liked this interpretation that they're non-Jews better, I think, for exactly that reason. I think that's right. Okay, so here's Pharaoh's daughter. Now, in the rabbinic tradition, she actually gets a name, doesn't she? She does get a name. Uh, but let's hold on to that for a second. Let's talk names okay. once she names this baby. Uh, you want to read oh, a bit? Okay. And his sister, that's Miriam, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and summon a nursing woman from the Hebrews that she may suckle the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the girl went and summoned the child's mother. This is, I, this is so Go beautiful. Ahead. Yeah. Um, I, all I was going to say is right there, there are so few words here, but each word is uh, just gorgeous and sort of the, the emotional intelligence of this story. Yes. Well, and I, I to make another point from our adult forums, I, I had the opportunity um, to interview uh, an artist and, and capture it on video, uh, Cody Miller, for this project. And he's made this beautiful uh, collage painting of Moses's mother at the moment where she's kind of letting him go upon the Nile. And it catches uh, really wonderfully that what she must have been feeling, like the emotional truth of that moment where desperately uh, she she tries to protect this child who she's hidden for three months um, and has to let him go to chance, really, huh. or to, huh. or to uh, God's will. Huh. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm looking back at that verse, and it's amazing, that whole story about which, you know, so much art has been made in music and movies and plays and uh, commentary is one verse. Yeah. Right? It's incredible. <laughs> one verse. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's What's powerful about it is... Um, I feel like this this impulse to midrash is everywhere. You know, I mean, it's not. It, it's been in Christianity as well, and it's probably in every religious tradition, every folk tradition, uh, every political tradition. You know, there's this desire we have to take pieces of stories and then illuminate them as much as we can. And so, so all that art and poetry and other things reflecting on that one verse is a kind of cultural midrash as well. So for those of you who don't remember uh, uh, what midrash is, I think we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Uh, midrash are these rabbinic stories, exactly like Carl is saying, that, that fill in the gaps, that the places in the story, the seams and the, uh, uh, the places where it feels like there has to be more there, midrash becomes an opportunity to flesh that out. Um, so we'll be looking at a number of midrashim. In fact, why don't you take the next verse or next couple verses, and then we've got a nice midrash. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, carry away this child and suckle him for me, and I myself will pay your wages. And the woman took the child and suckled him, and the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became a son to her. And she called his name Moses, for from the water I drew him out. Uh, so let me read that Hebrew there so you can hear the uh, uh, wordplay that's happening there. So Shmo, his name was Moshe. Uh, 
Uh, Moshe is the Hebrew for Moses. Uh, mm-hmm. Key because Nin Hamayim from the water Mayim Mishitehu. Uh, I drew him out. So you've got that sort of uh, Mayim and Mishitehu uh, that's playing around with the name there. But of course, the, the most interesting thing about Moses's name is we know from linguistics today that Moshe is an Egyptian name. It's not a Hebrew name, um, which makes sense. Pharaoh's daughter is giving it to him, of course. Uh, but I, I had never thought about this before I was uh, preparing for this week and looking over at Midrashim. But there's a Midrash that points out that Moses, Moshe, is the name that he is called for the rest of the Torah. It's what the Israelites call him. It's what... Uh, future generations of Jews call him, and it's what God calls him. And yet, presumably, he was given a different name also. Right? Presumably, his birth mother gave him a name. Right. So why is he called Moshe? And the answer here is, at least in this Midrash, that it's in honor of this woman, this ally, as you called her before, uh, who subverts the will of her father and saves his life. Uh, in honor of her, he is always called by the name that she gave him, Moshe. Okay, so she has great import, great power. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter is really key to this story, and without her, it goes nowhere. <laughs> yes, yes. And actually, in this Midrash, we're told that her name is Bitya. Yeah. Which is the first time I, I ever knew of her having a name. Um, and I wonder, does the name Bitya have any significance that we know of? Is it also a wordplay? Um, so it is a wordplay. Uh, it uh, can relate to two different words. Uh, there's uh, um, sort of the most clear understanding is probably that it has something to do with house, uh, bite. Mm. Uh, uh, but it also can be Batia, uh, the daughter of God. Wow. Uh, so there's all sorts of ways we can play with this um, this name here, this Midrashic name that's given to her. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to... Let's keep going. Uh, from, yeah, from the shorts... Little short story. Did you say it was seven verses? No. Uh, seven or eight verses, right? The entirety of this yeah. story is seven or eight verses. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. So we're at verse 11 now. Uh, okay. Sometime after that, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his kinsfolk and witnessed their labors. Now, we're not told anything here about how does he know that there is kinsfolk, right? Maybe right. he's raised with that tradition, though um, you'd think that that's something that Pharaoh's daughter would have to keep a secret. Yeah, but maybe his mother, his birth mother, who is uh, suckling him, is whispering it to him early on. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And they are his, at some level, they're his people, regardless of the genetic connection, right? If he's raised by his birth mother as the wet nurse. Uh, right, and that's this incredible thing about Moses. He, he doesn't sit comfortably in either world. Right. He's a stranger to everyone. To everyone. Uh, and maybe there's something to that of why he's able to be who he is. Um, so sometime after that, Moses had grown up. He went out to his kinfolk and witnessed their labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen. Uh, so 
here, right, I, I think we can read this as being, and the easiest read is just that uh, he sees their labors and immediately he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen, and he decides to step in. Uh, right. But again, this becomes an opportunity for the Midrashim uh, to step in, for the rabbis to step in and sort of read something else into it. And so they say, what does it mean that he saw their labors? It means that he saw the oppression that was being exerted upon them. And he did something to stop it. He went and rearranged all the labors uh, so that the uh, 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 young would be doing things that at least they were capable of doing rather than having to bear the burdens of adults and um, all of these different categories of people that the sick wouldn't have to be dealing with uh, the uh, same labors as the healthy and and the Midrash steps in and says, this is why God picked Moses, that God looked out at this moment and said, you've put aside your affairs to help these people. I will put aside my affairs to help you. Is this a, you know, that is, it's just striking to me that um, in this story so far, in, uh, God has not actually intervened. No, not at all. Right? We get God in the last few verses. It's just been a series of random events. Yeah. So I, I think in my mind, I was assuming like, oh, this is telling us of a plan of God that has worked itself out. Um, but what that midrash seems to imply is that we are not all, you know, just simply puppets in a God in the hands of a God who knows everything that is going to happen and has set things up in a certain way, but that our actions matter in that they they speak to God about our character and then God chooses how to use a, us based on that. Yeah. 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 Um, I, and I think it's one of the distinctive things about rabbinic literature is that though they're clearly um, deep believers, it's a, a really humanistic tradition, right? Yeah. Why is it that Moses is picked? It's because of his moral compass. Huh. Uh, right. And it was human initiative on his part that led to that. It's not uh, just divine intervention. Right. Do you, are you familiar with the story of Abraham Lincoln killing a slave taskmaster? No, I don't know this story. Yeah, I, I learned it in grade school. It's kind of like a... Um, Is this a real story? No, no, it's not. It's like an American midrash. You know? It's like a story that people invented at the time um, in order to exalt Lincoln more and more as the great emancipator, right? This It takes place before he was ever president. The idea is he's a young lawyer. He's walking along. He sees the slave being beaten by a master, and he kills the master. The American and it's appropriate. Wow. Yep, exactly. That's exactly it. Um which I love because, you know, part of our investigation this year is how does this Exodus story speak to us as Americans at this particular American moment, yeah. you know, and, and we have used this story throughout our history <laughs> in all sorts of different ways. Um, there was a really interesting article on religion and politics. Um, I think the author's name uh, was Rachel Weaver. I'll double check that and put in the show notes. But she basically said the way we Americans read Exodus entirely depends on whether we think we've gotten to the promised land already or not. Uh. That the Puritans, the Puritans coming here thought they were coming to the promised land and their Exodus was over. 
Um, and so they read Exodus as a story of the past that affirms their current cultural position. This is back, you know, in the 17th, 16th, 17th century. Um, Whereas African-American slaves read Exodus as America being their wilderness, right? They are looking towards that promised land as they are here. Um, Yeah, it's totally fascinating. And it's a little bit of a digression from what we were talking about. No, I love that. I love that. Um, Right. And, you know, the the Jewish tradition uh, definitely is that we have not achieved redemption yet. And we see that because... uh, we read the entirety of the Torah, the five books of Moses over the course of a year. And so the Torah ends with Deuteronomy with Moses dying. And then you'd expect that we would go on to the book of Joshua and hear about entering the promised land. But the moment that we finish the story of Moses dying, uh, we take out another Torah and we read the first chapter of Genesis all over again and start the cycle again. (laughs) Uh, we are always living on the edge, never entering into the promised land. Wow. How different would our lives be if we were, if we were more willing to embrace that idea, Mm. right? Mm. If we were willing to say our, our human life here is not about, um, the successes of conquest of the promised land. Our human life is about getting in the wilderness, being in the wilderness and getting, to the point where we stand at the the edge, the verge. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so, um, the other really interesting thing in the Midrash that I want to touch on, um, was in a Midrash from Rashi. Uh, there's this whole rape narrative going on, which I think is also important for us to look at, to consider. So, Rashi brings this idea. He says that uh, he, he's working off of a verse in verse 11, striking a Hebrew man. Uh, and he says that the Hebrew man was the husband of Shelomith, a daughter of Debris. So they're actually bringing in characters who show up in Leviticus chapter 24. Uh, oh. Right. This is the uh, um, uh, sort of Game of Thrones moment where the characters from two seasons ago show up. <laughs> Uh, and he, the taskmaster laid eyes on her. So he woke him, the Hebrew at night and took him out of the house. So the taskmaster wakes the husband and takes him out of the house. And then the taskmaster returns, enters the house and rapes the woman. Right. He rapes Shalometh. Yeah. She is now named. Yeah. But rapes her. And she doesn't know that it's not her husband. He's Mm. removed her husband without her knowing. So the husband returns and becomes aware of what's happened. He evidently doesn't know why he's been removed from the house. Um, And when the Egyptians saw that the husband figured it all out, he struck him and drove him all day. So we're, we're getting this whole background narrative for this moment of why is this taskmaster taking a particular interest in this man? Why is this right? And in, if you look at the text itself, right, this is one verse, verse 11. Sometime after that, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his kinfolk and witnessed their labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen. 
And it doesn't need anything more than that, but there's this whole background here uh, that the rabbis imagine. Well, and part of its power to me is um, Walter Brueggemann talks about the totalizing narrative of, of power, and particularly Pharaoh's power. So this idea that it creeps into every aspect of our life and our thinking. And here we have it um, creeping into the very homes of the Hebrew slaves, right? Into their beds, and, and in fact, violating them bodily, that, that, um, that Pharaoh's power violates him bodily. Um, yeah. And we, which is really terrifying. We know how often it's women's bodies that, uh, take the brunt of that. Right. Uh, and the, and that's the other powerful thing about this midrash from Rashi is she gets a name, right? So often a way of destroying someone's power is to take away their identity or their name. Um, and Rashi makes sure that her husband doesn't have a name, the taskmaster doesn't have a name, but we know that she is Shelomith, the daughter of Debri, mm. right? Mm. Um, so so at, even as he's telling the story of her... Um, a deep violation and empower- disempowerment. He is, he is trying to give her back her power by naming her. Huh, huh. And think about how much that's a part of so many justice movements too, right? Say his name, say her name, right? Say their names, right? Huh. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, an amazing story. Okay. Uh, verse 12. And he turned this way and that and saw that there was no man about, and he struck down the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. So, I, again, another, not, not to get us too lost, but uh, again, another really interesting midrash here. It's really an apologetic. Uh, right? The, the rabbis are bothered. How is it that Moses, who is supposed to be this moral paradigm for us, how could he kill someone? And so the Midrash says that what it meant when he was looking this way and that is he was actually looking into the future and he saw that there was no hope for any righteous person, uh, to arise from this Egyptian man, uh, right. Cause there is this Jewish tradition and you actually find it, uh, in the Babylonian Talmud and you find the almost exact same line in the, um, uh, Islamic Quran that every life is a world and to save a life is to save a world because you're saving all of the lives that can come from there too. Wow. Um, and so the, the rabbis are really bothered. How is it that Moses could do this? Because Moses isn't just killing this man. He's also killing the possibility of all of these future lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, so a, a deep apologetic here of, uh, Moses somehow uses his magic powers to see that uh, uh, nothing good will come of this man's line. And so he's not ending anything important. Well, and it reminds me a little of uh, how we ended last week with the story of the sacrifice of Isaac um, and how you were saying that the, the knife falls from... Um, from Abraham's hand because of the rumbling of the feet of the Israelites through the wilderness yeah. right? in the Exodus. There is this idea that the closer one comes to the, to the divine, the less temporal time matters. And kind of from the, the standpoint of the divine, um, all time is happening at once. Mm. Mm. 
from the standpoint of eternity. And so we have that here, like Moses maybe steps close to the divine, close to eternity, can see uh, the future and and knows how to act. Um which I just hold up there because I, I have a feeling we're going to come to it again. Uh, like, what does what does theophany mean? What does it, those moments where we actually come into contact with God? What is their import? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but there is another little midrash piece here, uh, which is concerned about how the method of actually slaying the the taskmaster. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. This is a great one. <laughs> this is a great one. Uh, so the rabbis say that uh, they, they debate how did he kill him. Uh, one of the rabbis goes out and says that he took a shovel and cracked his skull. Uh, we're getting rather graphic here. Uh, yep. uh, a different rabbi says that he killed him with a sword. And yet finally there's an opinion that says that Moses pronounced the divine name of God against him and killed him with the word. Right. There's this uh, longstanding esoteric Jewish tradition that the divine name itself has incredible power. Uh, what we call the, the tetragrammaton, yud Vavhei. vav uh, And Jews don't pronounce this. Uh, in fact, instead of trying to pronounce it, we simply say Hashem, which means the name. Uh, hmm. But there is this tradition that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies every year on Yom Kippur and utter the divine name. Uh, and get atonement for the people through it, that, that there is some inherent power there that has been lost. We don't know how to pronounce it anymore. Uh, and so Moses was the mystical miracle worker who knew the divine name. Right. And that divine name has power over life and death. Has power over life and death. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're coming uh, up against ideas of, of danger from other sources and just for uh, the Pharaoh's power, right? Like now we, now we have danger that is coming, um, from another source from, from a divine source. And that danger is going to amplify, particularly as we get to the plagues, um, throughout this narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. When he went out the next day, he found two Hebrews fighting. So he said to the offender, why are you striking your fellow? This man retorted to Moses, who made you chief and ruler over us? Actually, I think the answer is Pharaoh sort of made him chief and ruler over them. (laughs) Um, But here's the money line. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was frightened and thought the matter is known. When Pharaoh learned of the matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. He arrived in the land of Midian and sat down beside a well. There's actually a a rabbinic imagination here that says that Moses was in fact captured and brought to the executioner's block with a sword ready to chop off his head. And the uh, uh, executioner takes the sword and swings it down upon Moses's neck and the sword itself breaks rather than Moses. Um, Right. I'm not sure what to make of that, but, you know, great drama. Yeah, yeah. A, a very good scene. That would be near the end of the episode, the cliffhanger, uh, if this were um, the, the HBO show Exodus. Uh, uh, speaking of which, actually, uh, for anyone who's seen Prince of Egypt, the uh, animated 
uh, movie that Steven Spielberg made. Uh, one of the interesting things is how midrashic the telling is. It's a very Jewish telling rather than a biblical huh. telling. Uh, so if you go back and wow. look at it, I think you'll pick up on midrashim we're talking about here. Wow, cool. Very cool. Um, here again, we also have – so these two two men who are quarreling, uh, and one of the, the fragments of Midrash you shared with me, again from Rashi, who I now have to admit is probably my favorite. He's uh, Every time you share these with me, he's the one I keep going to. So wait, we um, say a little bit about Rashi then. Um, Rashi is a uh, sort of the most preeminent commentator in the Jewish world. Uh, lived about a thousand years ago in uh, what we now call France, what we called then the Ashkenaz. Uh, his uh, day job is he is a winemaker, which is uh, maybe why we get such exotic images from him sometimes. Uh, and rather than being the author of these commentators, uh, commentaries, excuse me, you can think of him as the compiler. That what Rashi does is he takes all of the Jewish understanding that uh, had come before him in creates sort of an official reference guide for it. Uh, or to say it differently, if you want to know what Judaism thinks about a particular verse in the Torah, you start with Rashi. It doesn't mean that's the only way to think about it, but it certainly means you're dealing with an authentic, legitimate Jewish view. Okay. Wow, that's great. So I so I am not wrong in, uh, in finding him the most uh, attractive. No, 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 no. Well within the tradition. Okay. Oh man, I always, you know, I always want to be a hipster and like the things that no one else likes, but I always <laughs> fail. Uh, well, continue with your skinny jeans and your latte. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, so, but anyway, Rashi gives us names for these two Hebrew men who are quarreling. They are Dathan and Abiram. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, and they reappear to us, uh, in Exodus 16 as, the ones who save some of the manna when they are forbidden to do so, uh, which I love. Yes, they're because always it, troublemakers, I guess. Exactly, and and right here from the beginning, we kind of get a inkling of what Moses is going to be up against, right? Like he's going to come back to lead these people into freedom, but they are not going to be the easiest people to lead. And I think anyone in positions of leadership in anything knows this dynamic uh, to their distress. Hmm. Uh, there's a old story, I don't know if it's true, about Golda Meir, the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, who went to meet with Nixon, and they were commiserating over the difficulties of leadership. And uh, Nixon was complaining about having to be the one leader for such a large people. And Golda Meir looked back at him and said, you think that's bad? I'm a leader of six million leaders. Yeah. Um, cats, like herding cats. Right, right. So these are our, our two named cats who, um, at least in terms of the of the tradition, we will see again. Uh, yeah. Okay. So moving on, are we are we at verse fourteen? Sixteen, I think. Sixteen. He's arrived in Midian, right? That quickly, we're done with the, right. we're done with Moses' life in Egypt, or at least his life as the uh, uh, daughter, or excuse me, the son of Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt, right? He will, of course, come back, but he will come back as a prophet of God, right? 
Okay, so this very quick transition, um, and his moving from Egypt to Midian is not hard or marked with danger the first time. Um, but when he, and this is just a little preview, uh, when he goes back to Egypt, it will be hard and marked with danger. So there's, there's a kind of appealing contrast in that. Like, this is easy uh, because he has not yet. Uh, experience the theophany of the burning bush. Yes. He is he is not yet the the prophet of God. Okay, all right. So we and should actually go back to the end of fifteen. Oh. I think here. Uh, sure. He arrived sure, sure. in the land of Midian and he sat down beside a well. Uh, oh yeah. So anyone who uh, uh, has done some Bible study should know that uh, a well is sort of the OK Cupid of the. Uh, uh, ancient world here. Uh, uh, that's where you go to meet that special someone. Right. And that's happened again and again in Genesis. And here it is happening here. And we read it and we're just like, okay, well, we know what's going to happen next. Exactly. Exactly. We've entered into our uh, uh, rom-com period. We sure have. And uh, now let's meet our female protagonist. Yes. Um, the priest... The priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them off, and Moses rose and saved them and watered their flock. And they came to Ruel, their father, which let's pause there and point out that the priest of Midian has two names. Two names. In the books of Exodus. Uh, Yeah, he also becomes known as Yitro, Jethro. Um, right. Now the rabbis are really bothered by this because, of course, he's going to end up. Moses is going to end up marrying one of his daughters. Uh, but how is it that Moses, the great monotheistic leader, could marry a priest of idolatry or a priest's daughter of idolatry? Uh, and so we get an apologetic here too. That why is it that the priest of Midian is out wandering the uh, uh, wilderness with seven daughters? Uh, the answer is that he has given up idolatry. He's declared his loyalty to the one God and as such has been kicked out of Midian. Um, in fact, they go on as far to say as all of his shepherds have left him. So his daughters are now working as the shepherds in the field. Wow. Okay. Huh. I, I see. And so that's why they're, they're not defended when they come to this. Well, presumably they come surrounded by sheep, which they want to water at the well. Um, and these other shepherds, it, that's good. It explains these shepherds' violence. Yeah. Like, why do they come and try and drive them away? What are they doing? Um, and it's because not only Moses is an outsider, but Ruel slash Jethro and his daughters are also outsiders. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. So, um, let's see. Should I go on? Please. Okay, and they, being the daughters, came to Ruel, their father, and he said, Why have you hurried back today? And they said, An Egyptian man rescued us from the hands of the shepherds, and what's more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. Now, I I find it amazing that they are identifying Moses as an Egyptian here, right? Uh, maybe I'm making too much of this, but it just seems clear, as we were saying, he, he really belongs... To two communities and therefore not really to any community fully. And strangers, complete strangers, are going to look at him and read him not as Hebrew but as Egyptian. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, they're sort of projecting forward today, one of the interesting things 
for Jews in the United States uh, is for many Jews, uh, about 80% of us, uh, we present as white and certainly benefit from white privilege. And yet for many of those same Jews, our internal sense of ourselves is not that we are white. It's that we're Jewish, that that is, that's the category difference. Um, and yet of course, Moses here is benefiting from Egyptian privilege, no matter where he's thrown his lot in or how he understands his place. Right. Right. He, and I just feel like that tension is going to continue to play itself out in his life forever. And we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, kind of the power of the stranger. Um, you know, I, I think it's very possible that the reason he can lead and lead well is because he doesn't belong to any world. Mm -hmm. And therefore people think that it's easier for him to be fair. Right. (laughs) So, um, which I think is a, uh, it's a good question for religious people in a quickly secularizing nation. You know, we, we often lament the fact that we are losing cultural relevance and ground, but is there a benefit to our strangeness? Like as we come, we become weirder in the sense of the overall culture doesn't mean that we can, we can do things for justice, for peace, for mercy that we couldn't do when we weren't strange. Huh. Huh. I'm going to chew on that. I like that. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll probably come back to it. It's one of my favorite yeah. points. So listeners beware. Um, okay. So, so the daughters have come back and you want to take it from verse 20. He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why did you leave the man? Ask him to break bread. Uh, right. What kind of, uh, um, hospitality is this right here? Uh, Moses consented to stay with the man and he gave Moses, his daughter, Zipporah as his wife. She bore a son whom he named Gershom for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Uh, so let me read that Hebrew for you. So you can hear the word play there too. The, the name is Gershom, uh, Kiamar for, uh, uh, Ger, Gare is the word for a, a stranger, a resident alien. Haiti Be'eretz Nachria, in a strange land. Um, so that's where we're getting the Gare from in Gershom. Right. Uh, which is quite a claim. You know, he's, he's saying in some ways we're all going to be strange from this point out, right? Uh, not only me, but my descendant. Uh, and, and we're going to accept that and, uh, and own it for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a long time. And and that's the end then of this, uh, trauma. Now we get sort of this cap where, uh, uh, God enters into the picture. Right. A long time after that, the King of Egypt died and actually, there's a rabbinic tradition here. I don't know what to make of this other than they're making uh, Pharaoh as evil as possible. That says that actually uh-huh. he didn't die, but instead was afflicted with terrible leprosy. And his Egyptian physicians told him the only cure is to slaughter Hebrew children, 150 in the morning and 150 in the evening, and bathe in their blood twice a day. Wow. Uh, wow. Right. This is the gruesome sort of Hollywood scenes of uh, the the villainous Pharaoh. Yeah. Um, and once again, 
previewing a plague, right? Previewing a plague. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when we get to the plagues, that'll be really, it's a big question is what is going on with those plagues. So again, our own little preview of what's coming up. Uh, okay. So we have a villainous Pharaoh and, and also we have this idea that it's all one Pharaoh. So, and this is, we talked about this last week too, uh, kind of the plain reading of the text would say that we are now on Pharaoh number three. Yes. Um, from the beginning of the book of Exodus, but the rabbinic reading says, no, this is all one, one person or one power. It, it almost makes Pharaoh uh, a mystical entity or force. Yeah, Pharaoh becomes sort of the representation of oppressive power. Uh, so back to 23, a long time after that, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites were groaning under the bondage and cried out. Their cry for help from the bondage rose up to God. God heard their moaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Uh, what a powerful ending to this section. Um, but again, we've got a, a moment of human initiative. It is the crying out that leads to God entering into the picture. This righteous cry of suffering. Um, yeah. And I, there's a Hasidic tradition uh, uh, from the 1800s that says up until this point, the Israelites were so stuck in this experience of oppression that they couldn't even imagine a world that wasn't this oppressive, that it took uh-huh. the first sort of budding of their redemption. It took, uh, Moses's initiative here, uh, so that they could begin to imagine a better world. And only then could they cry. So, so even though he is off stage, what we are being shown here is the effects of his action. Yeah. And the effects of uh, individual humans striving towards justice. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the parlance of our time, they're becoming woke. They're becoming woke. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's exactly the idea is they're becoming woke. And I, what I love is this thought that crying out um, is the first form of resistance, right? That um, you have to acknowledge your state, acknowledge how oppressed you are, and you and you have to grieve it. Yeah. And once you grieve it, then action becomes possible. Yeah. And I find that very powerful. Um, and also, I like the role of complaint here, too. You know, I mean, I mean, I think we're often very impatient with complaint. You know, uh, there's this whole right now in the American right, there's this whole use of the term snowflake, you know, to say, oh, you're so fragile. You're complaining so much. Um, you would melt just like a snowflake if you faced any real adversity. Um, but I think what the text is telling us here is that very complaint is is signaling massive things that are coming like huge cultural change, um, that it is the first step to a powerful resistance that will remake the world, the culture. Yeah. Right. Before you can, before you can make the world better, you have to be able to say this is wrong. Right. And you have to name the powers that are oppressing you. Um, you you have to get super honest. And, um, and 
the reassuring here thing here is that if you do, God will respond. Yeah, this is uh, not a text for the status quo, huh? No, no, nothing about it is a text for no, I mean, the status quo. Right, the deeper you read Exodus, the more subversive it really is. Yep. All right. Well, now that we've subverted you for this week, uh, I think we're going to bring this to a close. Yes. Um, any final thoughts before we do, Dan? Uh, my only final thought is another plug to uh, like us on Facebook, uh, a DSO Big Read. Uh, type that into your Facebook search and you can find us. And in particular, you should uh, search for it uh, because we are going to start having uh, what we're calling a midrash of the moment. Every week I'll uh, pick out a midrash, make a short little video introducing it, and give us a different read uh, into our Big Read. And I should announce that I will be gone next week, and we are going to find a, uh, a special guest to take my seat. And also, we are working on our list of, uh, of other guests who will be joining us. So um, there are a few changes in the works. Yeah, and if there are voices uh, you'd like to hear join us, let us know. Lost in the Wilderness, A Priest and a Rabbi Explore Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogart and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christchurch Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me online at prayerbookart.com. Dot com And Daniel, where can they find you? Uh, I'll give you a different link this week. Uh, find me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash D-S-Bogard, B-O-G-A-R-D. 